Hello everyone and welcome back to Sabbath School from Home. Uh, this is an interesting quarter and we, we're finding our, feeling our way into it still. We're, we're looking at Revelation, we're focusing for a, a number of weeks around Revelation 14 and over, overall looking at a passage that Adventists love to refer to as the Three Angels Message. And perversely tonight, I have to not say tonight, and perversely, in this episode, we are not looking at the Three Angels' message yet again. Um, it wasn't the topic of the first week of the quarter. It's not the topic of this second week. So we're going to see where it takes us, uh, looking at some other parts of Revelation 14. I'm Lachlan, and I'm looking forward to having a bit of a chat. Well, I'm Ken, and I'm also looking forward to having a bit of a chat. I just want to observe that uh, uh, it's not the Three Angels' message. It's the three angels' messages. Um, but anyway, uh, that's just a little clarification. And I'm Luke, and I would like to observe that it's not just not only the three angels' messages, it's not the three angels. Ah. More than that, they have more messages. And well, that's what we've got to get into right now in this episode. So we're actually going to pick up in Revelation 14, in my Bible that I'm looking at, there is a heading starting in verse 6 of Revelation 14 that's called The Three Angels. And we're going to pick up in verse 14, which has an, another subheading. And of course, the, the headings are extra biblical in a sense. They're editorial. Um, but yes, we're about to read some verses that are not part technically of The Three Angels' messages. So let's read Revelation 14. Right. From verse 14 to the end. I, I might start. Okay. Then I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. All right, well, that's a, that's a long distance. The New Living Translation renders it as 180 miles. Okay. Um, that's a good way to have blood the height of a horse's bridle. <laughs> it certainly is a large amount of blood. Yeah. Um, so what have we got here? We've got, we've got another angel... Uh, so we've got the characters are the son of man yes who has a sharp sickle in his hand then we've got another angel calling out and saying take your sickle and reap uh, so the son of man with the sharp or the person who looks like the son of man um, uses the sharp sickle uh, and harvests the earth um, then there's another angel who has a sharp sickle. Yes. And then there's the angel who's in charge of the fire, uh, as opposed to the temple, or the yes. one who came out of the temple um, previously. And he says, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes. 
and then the grapes <laughs> are thrown into the wine press. So uh, I think there's four characters. The one who I looks like the Son of Man, the first here. angel with the with the sharp sickle who reaps the harvests the earth, uh, the, another angel with a sharp sickle who harvests the grapes, and the angel who was in charge of the fire who comes and tells him to do that. Yeah, I think you're right. So there's three angels in the passage we just read, but these are not the three angels of the three angels' messages fame. And following the... Um, the topic of, of this week's lesson in the Bible study guide for the Adventist Sabbath School, we're actually not going to go back yet and read from verse 6, which is technically the three angels' messages. So these are three more angels plus this, this character, the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man. Um, so Luke, uh, are you willing, uh, you pointed out there's more than three angels. Do you agree with our assessment here that in Revelation 14, we've reached an angel count of six plus a character called one like the Son of Man? I do agree with that interpretation. And, and indeed, okay. if we go back to verse 13, there is a voice um, okay. as well. Um, so there's one like the Son of Man and there's a voice and there's also the Spirit ah, who says yes. Well, you're, I'm really glad you pointed that out, Ken. I'd missed it. One of the things that I recall hearing from a theologian um, and, a, and a revelation commentator at one point is to watch out in this book for the back-to-back -back contrasts between hearing and seeing. So if what I'm noticing right now is in Revelation 13, and I heard a voice. Yeah. And in Revelation... In, so, sorry, I'm saying Revelation... We're all in chapter 14 of Revelation. Yeah. So I mean, verse 13, and I heard a voice. And verse 14, then I saw a white cloud. Yeah. And we again get this pattern of back to back, hearing and then seeing. Um, so I am not bold enough to suggest that the voice heard is the same character as the one like the Son of Man seen, mm. but it is a possible mm -hmm. idea there that there is a linking. And, um, well, I mean, even back very far into the Old Testament, I think Revelation draws on a lot of imagery from the Old Testament. Mm. Um, the, a, a voice without form is, is one of the things of, you know, one of the mm. ways that God communicates. And, and a, a cloud is another. Yes. True. The cloud is where, well, God is in yeah. the cloud. In, in the cloud on the mountaintop or, or mm. the, the, the pillar of cloud um, by day or I think there's another one I'm trying to think of in the Old Testament where God appears as a oh, cloud. right. Yeah, that's a really cool connection. Mm. I wasn't thinking of that. I'm glad you mentioned it. But of course, in this one, the white cloud is where the Son of Man or the one like unto the Son of Man sits. Mm. Well, I, I want to jump in and talk about this character like like the Son of Man. Um, the Monday uh, Monday's discussion in the Sabbath School Guide um, asked the question, <clears throat> asked the question, think about the term Son of Man and what it says of Christ's humanity. And um, I guess I'm about to start a, a small rant. So before I do so, do, do you have any feelings about that? The term son of man and what it says about Christ's humanity? Uh, potentially, but I'm interested to hear your rant. Uh, <laughs> well, 
Well, my rant is this, and it goes back, it's not my idea, it goes back to something that I learned actually in, in one of the, at the time, sort of core um, compulsory Bible Christian studies classes when I was a student at Avondale, then college, now university. Um, the lecturer pointed out that the term son of man is not very frequently used in application to humans in the Bible. I mean, what is it? What connotations does it does it bring to your mind, t- Son of Man? Where else is this phrase found in the Bible? Well, it's found in Mark eight verse thirty one. Um, okay, that's where Jesus says uh, uh, he said he would suffer. Uh, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, etc., and would rise in three days. So this is a common title for himself, uh, yep. for Jesus. Uh, I'm told uh, I haven't looked elsewhere for it, but that's that's one. It's also used so, in Daniel chapter 7 uh, and verse 13. <laughs> yes. Um, well, this is... This is where I was going. So you're correct. It's actually it's used in in the Gospels quite a bit. Jesus does adopt it as a self-appointed title. Yeah. So he refers to himself as Son of Man more than more than just that occasion. Definitely that occasion, Ken, and, and a few others. I think um, in in stages of the Gospels, yeah. um, particularly in Matthew and um, Mark and Luke. Actually, I think. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a strange phrase. And in the ears of the listeners contemporary with Jesus, it would have definitely carried the, the connotation of Daniel. And in Daniel 7.13, you're correct. The, the phrase son of man appears, in fact, better because it says, I saw someone like a son of man. Mm. So it's the same phrasing. It's not just a son of man. It's someone mm. like a son of man. And that's what we read here in Revelation 14. And, and we also it see is, it in Revelation 1 verse 13, um, yes. where... Again, it's uh, one like, you see, there's, there's interesting use of these different articles, isn't there? There's the Son of Man, and there's yes. a Son of Man mm. in and Revelation And there's one like the Son of Man. Yeah. 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 Well, it's like a Son of Man in Revelation mm. one thirteen, and it's, isn't it in Revelation 4, 13, 14.13, it is... Oh no, fourteen, fourteen. It is. Oh no, again, like a son of man. Well, so it's the same me, phrase. Like unto the son of man. <laughs> right. In the King James. Right. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. And in Daniel, it's uh, uh, just looking for it again here. Uh, one like a son of man again. So it's the mm. same. It's the same basic phrase as translated in the NIV. Here's yeah. a really, really interesting thing. I've got to, you've got to take you here, even though you're only halfway through your rant, um, Lachlan, because um, I referred you to Mark 8, verse 31. Now, yeah. before we go back and look at this next text, which is going to be Mark chapter 9 and verse 7, I want you to observe this. Um, verse Revelation 14, 14 says, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold and a sharp sickle in his hand. Come over mm. to Mark chapter 9 and verse 7. Um, and Peter's just said to Jesus at the transfiguration, well, let's build some shelters. And a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son 
whom I love. Listen to him. Right. Isn't that interesting? There's a cloud and there's a reference to a sun. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that you pointed that out. So this is really interesting. And that takes me exactly um, where my rant was heading. The There are two phrases that we are familiar with um, if, if we're well embedded in, in the sort of um, Christian vocabulary, let's say. Uh, son of God and son of man. And the lessons, the question in the lesson pamphlet is implying that the term son of man speaks to us of Christ's humanity. But I contend, um, as I say, not my idea, but I contend that the phrase son of man or like the son of man biblically carries far greater connotation of the divinity and the miraculousness. In, in Daniel, where this phrase is really sort of um, born in a way and keeps because it's in the Gospels, Jesus uses it to self-apply to himself, but he is referencing back to Daniel. The one like a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven and approaches the ancient one and is led into his presence. That's not a very vivid picture of the human experience. That That's a very vivid picture of something way, way beyond the natural human experience. So the title son of man, I contend, speaks of Christ's divinity far more than it speaks of Christ's humanity. And somewhat perversely, the phrase son of God, the phrase son of God is in fact used more regularly to apply to humans. And in, interestingly, not just individual humans. Um, one of the early uses of that phrase is in the story of the Exodus. In, in Exodus 4.22, God instructs Moses to say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So when when the words son of God are used, and Jesus does use that uh, in, other, in other moments to apply to himself, he is identifying with the nation of Israel. He's identifying his human connection by saying the son of God. Um, and in fact, you know, he, he teaches on a number of occasions using language that we are sons and daughters of God. Yes. Uh, and that that's a good description of our human experience. And this is a theme that Paul picks up on too. Exactly. So I contend that the that the lesson actually accidentally perhaps has this backwards and and that really when we see in Revelation 14:14 14, 14, a reference to one like the son of man clearly doing something a little unhuman, right? Sitting on a cloud <laughs> and wearing a crown of gold and a sharp sickle that turns out to be a powerful supernatural what? sickle because <clears throat> it's the thing that is used to harvest the earth. That's also not a particularly human experience. Um, uh, my answer to the question in the lesson is, I don't, I don't think this phrase informs me in any way of Christ's humanity. I think it speaks to me of Christ's divinity. Good. Well, lesson question answered. Moving on. Well, <laughs> there yeah, we are. I, I wonder whether there is another way uh, where it does. It, 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 in fact, both of these phrases speak of both those aspects of mm. both the divine and the human aspects of the Messiah, of Christ, um, of Jesus. Uh, because um, if one is the son of perdition, a son of something, then you have the characteristics of your so, parent. Um, this is uh, this is interesting to me because there is an assumption that both of you are making in that I think the lesson question was how does this verse Revelation fourteen 
um, 14, or, or is that the right one? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Revelation 14, 14 has this phrase, what does it say of Christ's humanity, though God, he became like, just like us? Um, right. Um, presumably j- taking the son of man thing. But I find it fascinating that the assumption that both the lesson and you, Locke, are making is that Revelation 14, 14 is about Christ. Mm. Uh, okay. Because why say yeah. like the Son of Man? In other parts of the Bible, we were just talking about them. It just says the Son, the of, son man. of Man. Yeah. Why is this uh, something? This is a Christ like figure, but uh, being Christ like by definition means not being Christ. Uh, okay. Well, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. Uh, sorry, I see what you're saying. But I think um, where the Bible records the, the phrase, without the condition of being like is when Jesus self applies it to himself. You know, he, he speaks of the son of man. Right. And he clearly but why implies, would the author of revelation say, I saw someone who looked like Jesus. I'll tell you why, why not I just say, is, I saw Jesus. Ah, but in revelation elsewhere, we're also seeing a, a, a clearly a, a drawing on imagery and phraseology from the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, it was referred to as one like the son of man. So I feel like there could be partial explanation by just the, 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 the yeah, the literary um, callback. And, and, no, and you, the, could, you could well be right. It just fascinates me because yeah. it feels like an intentional choice. Yeah. Well, except, except that the definite article, the, is used in the KJV, but ah uh, is used in the NIV. So like mm. a son of man. Yeah, which is even, like which is even of man. less a direct a reference. Except that that same reference is used in Daniel yeah. to refer to the Messiah, like a son of man. Um, and again, Jesus says the son of man when he applies it to himself. So mm. so when, 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 when it's another person talking about Jesus, it's like a son of man and when it's jesus talking about himself it's the son of yeah. man yeah no i can accept all that i just love yeah. to know why it, it isn't it interesting yeah, what what why do i mean certainly in, in in the english language um we draw a very clear distinction between the thing and something that is like, like the, the thing. thing yes um <laughs> but maybe that distinction doesn't exist in the hebrew and greek <laughs> I don't, well, I, I don't clearly, know. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know, but there's clearly some ambiguity about the article being definite or indefinite. Mm. I've noticed a footnote in my New Living Translation, which, which renders it in the text as like the Son of Man, but with an asterisk, and the footnote says, or like a Son Oh, well, that's man. not helpful, huh? yeah. New Living Translation. <laughs> Come Pick on, make up your mind. <laughs> well, it could be, I, I don't know. Um, I'm going to have to check Maybe this with my wife, both. Clancy. Because she she actually um, marks theology students learning Greek. She does some marking for them, and and may may have access to enough understanding of Greek to be able to. to it could be that there is no differentiation in Greek between a definite or an indefinite article, or at least in this construction, there isn't, and that the translation into into English requires an arbitrary choice. I'm not sure. Well, you'll need to go uh, back to clear. the Hebrew in Daniel as well. Mm. Yeah, so, fair yes. enough. I think, yeah, you may. You may. Um, all right. Well, Where does this I, I take us? 
Yeah, well, so I don't think it takes us anywhere too much further than where we're at. Um, <laughs> other than yet again, I, I have found an opportunity to declare the lesson pamphlet being wrong, and that's not necessarily what I set out to do. So, um, well, it's <laughs> it's not a life goal. Where, where it um, leaves me is where I often end up when I read Revelation, which is that I wish I understood what on earth it was going on about. Yeah. Because, and, and, and this thing about the son of man or like the son of man or like a son of man is a good microcosm um, of the entire book for me personally, in that I, it, it, it's just impenetrable. Mm. Um, and what I, I, I tend to, I tend to approach the Bible with a student's attitude what can i learn from this what is this teaching me what what should i understand from it and i find revelation frustrating constantly because it doesn't allow you to do that there are of course plenty of people who say they know what revelation is talking about but i think they're overconfident Hmm. frankly um all right I find myself convinced by your assessment, um, <laughs> but in the interest of of one other detail that I that I think is present here, so um, I'm going to make the claim that that we it's reasonably apparent from the passage we read and the passage that that precedes it that that we haven't yet read and we're winding our way to in a convoluted and nonlinear way um, that this passage is speaking in broad strokes of of judgment. Um, you know, there's there's Punish, uh, the lesson point out, two harvests. Well, certainly the second half is punishment. There are two harvests because the one on the the one like the son of man on a cloud has a sharp sickle, and when when called to, so the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. And then there's another angel who has the power to destroy with fire, who who shouted to an angel with a sharp sickle, swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes. Yes, and these are two the, the separate angels. two angels with sickles. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking for the, for the wording and I couldn't find it. The lesson, if I understood it correctly, implied that the first harvest is a harvest of grain and the second harvest is a harvest of grapes. Now, the second harvest is clearly a harvest of grapes uh, because it says it in verse 19, swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. And... I've been trying diligently to avoid uh, covering territory in earlier verses here that w- that we are yet to get to. But but surely you can't read that without noticing um, that in verse 10, um, 9 and 10, anyone who worships the beast and his statue must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup, cup of wrath. So... The idea of grapes and pressed grapes... The wine of his fury is being poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Uh, So so you're drinking fury from a cup of wrath. Yes. Um, It doesn't sound very pleasant to me. I want to point out, just uh, to make things even more complicated, in verse 8, there is another wine of wrath that is not God's, but Babylon's, (laughs) and it's Uh, the wrath of her fornication. Yeah. So, so wine isn't turning out to be to, to be given a great um, five star rating here in, in Revelation fourteen. That's for sure. So the, are you are you convinced that there are two harvests here? Yes. Um, I I think that's yes, a plausible reading because it, verse uh, f- fifteen 
there is an angel who comes out of the temple and he instructs the one like the son of man to mm. reap with his sharp sickle. Then there's another yeah. angel who comes out of the temp comes out of the comes out from the altar, which altar. I'm not sure if that's the same as the temple. No, there's another mm. angel who comes out of the temple who has a sickle. So the one like the son of man has a sickle. He's instructed mm. by an angel. Then there's another yeah. angel. This one has a sickle. And then there's another angel after that who comes mm. out from the altar who has power over fire. And they instruct the second sickle wielder mm-hmm. to wield their sickle. So there's four individuals. There, there's, there's a logical difficulty here. Uh, and this is my concrete um, construction. I don't mean constructing a building. I mean interpretation. Um, uh, so the earth was harvested. So if the earth was mm. harvested, there's nothing left to harvest. Mm. Well, there's, um, there's chaff. And yet there's grapes. Um, so clearly mm. uh, the earth wasn't all harvested. Only some of it was. Otherwise the grapes would be gone too. Yes. Yeah, well, maybe that's, the, that's, maybe that's why the interpretation is that one is... Harvesting something other than grapes, mm. perhaps grain. Mm. I mean, if you think in terms of agricultural societies, what gets harvested? So with sickles, you can harvest grain. I, I didn't know I have you, actually... you harvested grapes with sickles. I have to say no, that. I, well, no, well, I have harvested grapes can, for one one long when, weekend when, the only when I was sharp, a high school student. When the only sharp thing you have is a sickle, everything is harvested <laughs> with a sickle. <laughs> the, if it was a sickle that I used to harvest grapes, it was a very small... Um, blade that's it that's for sure the thing that i remember more vividly than the than the knife was actually the the fancy knitted gloves and i don't know whether they were to protect the fruit or to soak up the juice that inevitably does get on your hands ah. um but i was impressed by the by the soft kind of knitted gloves that that were used in the harvesting of the grapes that i experienced um in in a few minutes before we wrap this episode up i i want to ask the question um growing out of an observation or a comment made in the lesson the key word in verse 15 one of the key words is ripeness you know um swing the sickle for the time of harvest has come the crop on earth is ripe so following a a very well-trodden emphasis in the adventist community the lesson suggests that this is an implication of urgency urgency on the part of us as as individuals living in the world towards the end of time to to make decisions to be on the the right side of this judgment um you know that as i say that's that's fairly straight down the line not just adventist but but christian preaching in general but as you how how convinced are you by the by the idea that as you look at the world, it shows evidence of being ripe for the harvest. I don't even know what being ripe for the harvest means. Mm. Um. Um, a couple of observations. Um, one is, uh, there's a wonderful um, cartoon I've seen of avocados. Now, we, we all know that you, know, you have to get the avocado at just the right time. Um, and it's got a picture of seven avocados and it's got and it's entitled the life cycle of the avocado and it's not ripe not ripe not ripe not ripe not ripe not ripe bad um <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's about how avocados work <laughs> um uh so um but the, the point about ripeness uh 
is that it just is. Um, it's not... Uh, uh, so it's not something that you produce. Uh, you don't mm. create ripeness. Uh, ripeness happens uh, as part of the life cycle of the fruit. Um, uh, and I'm not so sure... So in, in that way, I suppose you have to prepare to be in a position to harvest. Um, but you can't make yourself ripe. You just become ripe. Hmm. Um, insofar as we are the harvest, um, it's not what we do to get ready. It's part of our, it's part of the natural life cycle. Um, and we are either ripe or we are not. Hmm. Um, uh, whenever the harvest occurs. And indeed, the harvest doesn't occur until we are ripe, perhaps one way or the other. Um, mm. Mm. Uh, yes, I feel like for every single one of the episodes for the rest of this quarter, I'm going to spend a lot of time saying, sure, possibly, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Maybe. I mean, there are all sorts it of things about could, it. Why yes. is it a sickle? Why not? I mean, what, what, okay, sickle to reap the wheat, but why a sickle to reap the grapes? Well, I, well, it and, could, and, it could and, be that's what they use. You need something yeah, yeah, well, to cut I, grapes, yeah, and maybe that's it is. the or, sharp or, but, farming but, tool. But maybe there's something significant about a sickle. Yeah, I don't uh, know. I don't know. Um, uh, maybe there's something significant about the 16,000, um, what is it? 1,600 stadia. 1,600 furlongs of, of, uh, blood. It's about the length comes of, out of the wine Well, I just did a little. You, you, would you? Would you both like to read something amusing? Yes. Uh, somebody online has. I started doing the calculations myself, uh, and then um, when I typed in uh, how long is sixteen thousand furlongs, uh, the first, the first Google answer that came up was somebody who has already done this calculation from Revelation fourteen twenty. Um, so let's see. Um, 16,000 stadia was, 1,600 stadia was 200 Roman miles, but it works out to 183.93 modern miles. Uh, interpreting that when it says the blood flowed out for that distance, it means radius. So we're talking about a lake or a pool of blood. Um, we've got a cylinder, which is has a radius of 183.93 modern miles um, and at a height of approximately five feet. That's the horse's bridle. Uh, height um mm. so you get doing all of the calculations to work that out you get 4.195 uh, times 10 to the 14 liters of blood um, assuming <laughs> a human body contains approximately five liters of blood you get approximately 83 trillion 901 billion 117 million 930 thousand people Ah, so now, oh, look, now we've got it, because what we can do is we can work out how many people have been, have lived throughout the course of history, and then we'll know how many more there are left before well, this will happen. And we can work out when it's going to be based if, on the if, rate. If we did that, which would be a very Adventist thing to do, and also completely misguided, um, it would be a very long time from now. Well, okay, but um, I have one geometric quibble with, with what you just calculated, Luke, the calculation you just read, because I read in verse um, 20 that the blood flowed from the winepress in a stream. 
Um, and I'm not sure that a stream implies a lake. Ah, so I'm not quite sure well, whether the geometric um, You just need to read a different of... version of the Bible. Though. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, mine doesn't refer to a stream either, and I like the... I, like the, uh, the, I mean, the that would give... I, the, the, whole, the whole thing is pointless, obviously. The point of this is not to calculate how many people were crushed in the wine press. Um, but it's this sort of it's an example of the sort of thing you can do with the imagery of mm, mm. Revelation and, and whether think... or not it's a lake of blood or it's a river of blood that goes for 183.9 miles both of those are fairly horrific images and yes. Revelation doesn't say wine it says blood comes out yeah and why choose yeah. the br- height of the bridle of a horse I mean, why not choose the well, shoulder see, of a person? that's why I think it's a no. lake. Because if it was a stream, it would it it, it would it, it couldn't be five feet high. Mm. Mm. Unless it was flowing in some sort of canal. Unless the type. horse was walking in a five foot deep canal, <laughs> pulling yeah. the wine press. Oh dear! Uh, is it time to <laughs> is it time to sort of wrap this up? Um, yeah, look, I think it is. I was going to, I was going to see if we wanted to explore the idea. So that, and I, I, we won't in this episode. We might leave it for some time in the future. The idea of ripeness relating to um, uh, there, there becoming a time where there is a clear distinction between um, the two harvests. But if you interpret the first as being Jesus harvesting those who are on his side, and the second being the angel harvesting those that are to be destroyed in the wine press. Um, then, then one idea of ripeness that is mentioned in the lesson, and, and is, I've certainly encountered in other um, Christian contexts, is the idea ripeness, meaning that at the end of time there becomes this sort of clear distinction. It becomes clear whose side each individual is on. The 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 um, how does it how does it express it? Um, the people of God reveal His image of grace. The children of the evil one reveal greed, lust, jealousy, and hate. The character of Jesus is revealed in one group and the character of Satan in the other. And by implication, there's no one where it's kind of ambiguous. Um, if that is the criteria by which one judges ripeness, then I have to admit my experience of the world doesn't suggest ripeness. Uh, I, I see a great amount of people that, that, that live in a sort of middle state where there's, where there's some revealing of good and some revealing of, of evil. And, and we all sort of struggle, I guess, with that as individuals. So... That was going to be a comment that I'd make, but I guess I'll leave it there. No, no better formed than that, and and you can you can go and think about it. So I think we should probably wrap it up. Ken, do you have a uh, a useful concluding thought? <laughs> just before you just before you do that, Ken, can I react to Lachlan's concluding thought with mine? Say <laughs> yeah, ahead. probably. I don't really know. Maybe. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think I do. It doesn't directly relate, but it's delightful. It's a poem again by Mary Oliver. I wake close to morning is the title. Why do people keep asking to see God's identity papers when the darkness opening into morning is more than enough? Certainly any God might turn away in disgust. Think of Sheba approaching the kingdom of Solomon. Do you think she had to ask, is this the place? (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that. I think that's a great thing to ponder. Um, well, thank you everyone for joining us um, as we've as we've mused on these verses. There's a lot that we've left unresolved. I, I think that is the nature of the genre of Revelation, whatever that genre may be. Uh, it invites us 
to leave things unresolved and to come back in community, in conversation, and to to seek greater truths uh, and and new thoughts, deeper thoughts, and greater closeness with God. Um, so we look forward to you joining us next week as we continue to try and do this uh, with Revelation 14 and and passages that that interact with it. Um, if you do want to share your thoughts, comments, reactions with us, you can write to sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'll have another episode for you to join us on next week. Mm. Well, I've got my 